Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're with us. Thank you you're here tonight to touch lives, to impart faith, to build people up and to give them vision. God, you know everyone in this room and I know you have a plan for each life. I pray tonight you would speak. I pray you would actually speak into our lives tonight. Welcome. Have your way among us. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a blind guy and he arrives in Texas and uh, he gets off the plane. He's guided to the um, airport and he's picked up by a taxi driver and he sits in the taxi and as he's sitting there in the taxi, he feels the seat and he thinks, this is a huge car. And he says to the taxi driver, this is a massive car. And the taxi driver said, yep, everything's big in Texas. And so the taxi driver drives him to his hotel and he arrives at the hotel and he, he walks from the hotel door all the way to the reception desk and it just goes on and on. It was a huge foyer. And he gets to the reception desk and says, that's a huge foyer. And the receptionist said, yeah, everything's big in Texas. And I said, okay. And, and so he wants a coffee because he's, he's been traveling. He would love a coffee. So he said, is there a coffee shop in this hotel? And he said, you're just along at the edge of the, the reception area. There's, there's a coffee shop. Go and order a coffee. So he went and ordered a coffee and they poured him this massive cappuccino. I said, that's a huge cappuccino. And the bartender said, yeah, everything's big in Texas. I said, wow. Anyway, after that huge cappuccino, he really needed the loo. And he said to the barista staff, is there a toilet here? And they said, yeah, you have to go down the corridor and you take the second door on the left. That's the toilet. Now, make sure you don't go in the first door because that's the swimming pool. So take the second door, that's the toilet. So he makes his way down the corridor and he actually takes the wrong door. He walks into the swimming pool door and he lands in the pool and he shouts, don't flush, don't flush. He assumes everything was even bigger in Texas. I, I love that, I love, one thing I love about Americans is typically American people have no problem thinking big. I love it, you know, make America great. Well, that's what I say. Okay, uh, I, I love how Americans are incredibly optimistic. I do, aren't you guys? I just love it. Very positive, very up for it, um, very unscottish, but totally up for it. I love it. I love it. However, you know, the tragedy is in the Christian world, Christians should be some of the biggest thinkers out there because we serve the greatest being ever, God who is omnipresent, omnipotent, and um, omniscient. He's the ultimate being ever. And he's got an ultimate plan. And yet so often Christians are caught up in small-minded thinking. And I, when, I, when I grew up, I was taken to a little church back home. Um, and it was full of wonderful people. But I have to say they were very small-minded. We kind of went to this church and we never did anything outside the walls of the church. Never did anything to engage the community. In fact, year on year, the church got smaller and smaller and smaller as people died. It never grew never did anything to change that and never expected anything different. And that was kind of my experience as a kid in a church. Anyway, when I became a Christian age 15, I started having a different vision. I started reading the Bible. And in the Bible, I really took it very seriously. I didn't take this as the word of man. I took it as the word of God, the Bible. And I, I, as I was reading the Bible, God started painting in the canvas of my soul a different vision to the vision and the expectation that I saw around me in the local church. He started filling my heart with vision and dream. Started filling me with an expectation for something different to what was being seen. 
And so I started seeing things. At age 15, I became a Christian. And when I was probably in my late teens, about 19 years old, I read in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, the verses I'm going to read to you tonight. And I have to say, these verses triggered something in my heart, painted in my heart a vision for what God wanted to do in and through his local church, something like I'd never seen before. And even today, I'm 42 years old, 23 years later, even today, these verses are a bedrock for me in terms of why I believe God wants to do great things through local churches in today's world. I don't care if it seems like the local church is in the decline, God's church is going to become the greatest thing on planet Earth. I believe it. And I'm not just saying that because I'm an optimist. I'm saying it because I've got biblical grounding for it. And it has ignited a fire in my soul. And my hope and my prayer is, is that I share with you, as I share with you some of these things tonight, that somehow or another the same faith that got ignited in my heart will also be ignited in your heart. And you will have this faith to see God do the great things he wants to do in our generation. Give me an amen if you agree. All right, so we're going to turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel was written by Daniel uh, about 600 years before Christ. He was in a place called Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most mentioned of the pagan kings in the Old Testament, most mentioned king, uh, was, he was a secular man. He wasn't interested in God. And yet Daniel brought Nebuchadnezzar, as you see in the following chapters, brought him to faith. But Daniel was a foreigner and a slave. He was t- he'd been taken captive from Jerusalem and he was a foreigner residing in Babylon and, he, and Nebuchadnezzar has dreams. And let me take you on this journey tonight. Daniel chapter two, verse one. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call the magicians, the conjurers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. In the ancient world, kings understood the value of spirituality. They understood that we were spiritual beings. They weren't secularists. They did understand that there was another realm. And so therefore, and they, they weren't necessarily worshipping the true God, but they definitely believed in magic and magic arts and various occultic activities. And so they, they, they took dreams as serious things, as this king, as you can see, did. And so he called all his magicians and sorcerers and conjurers together and he asked them for advice on these dreams. And so so they came and stood before the king and the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. So this king obviously understood that he had seen something in a dream that was so significant, he really wanted to know the meaning. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. That's a bit suki, really. (laughs) Tell us the dream to your tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. And if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Wow. So in other words, you really have no option here, guys. <laughs> this guy really knew how to motivate his staff. Tell me the dream and this interpretation or I will kill you in the most horrible of ways. Wow. He knew that the dream was so significant that he was not willing for them to come up with some pseudo-spiritual, slightly plausible sounding interpretation. I mean, he could have just described to them the dream and they could have come up with, oh, here's what that means. And they could have come up with something that sounded slightly plausible. He didn't want to risk that because he wanted to understand 
truly understand what that dream meant. He'd seen something, obviously, that so shook him that he wanted to make sure that the interpretation was accurate, and he would only know if the interpretation was accurate if they could indeed tell him the dream and the interpretation. God speaks through dreams. Did you know that? God speaks through dreams. I remember my mom had passed away in 1996, and in the last week of mom's life, God gave me a word for mom. And the word was from the book of Kings in the Old Testament. And the word was very simply, a lady, when she was going through a really hard time, made this declaration, all will be well. And she said it a couple of times. And that verse in the Bible jumped off the page and I just knew, wow, that's God's word to my mom. And I shared it with my mom. I said, mom, God's told me to tell you from these verses that all will be well. And it didn't seem well because mom died. She died on the Sunday night and the, her funeral was on the Wednesday. And it was a sad time. It was a time of great loss. The morning after the funeral, I had a phone call from one of my friends, Tim Brown. He's now down in Newcastle. He leads a church down there. And Tim Brown said, Peter, I had a dream last night. And in the dream, I met your mum. And she told me to tell you that all is well. Now, that was between me, my mum, and Jesus. I didn't tell people that. I believe in dreams. I believe that God speaks through dreams. And here God speaks to the secular king in a dream. I'm going to skip a few verses, but verses 6 to 12, you see the magicians and the sorcerers and conjurers kind of barter for time and say, listen, we need more time. Like, that's going to help them. And then the king says, enough's enough. And he decides, you're all going to be put to death. And he commands his, his commander of the military to go and implement the putting to death of all these wise men and conjurers and sorcerers. In the meantime, Daniel, who happens to be one of the wise men, although he's following the true God, Daniel hears about the king's commands. And Daniel asks for time. And that night, Daniel and his friends pray and ask God, God, would you show us the dream so that we can bring the interpretation to the king? And something amazing happens. God gives Daniel the exact same dream that same night. And the next morning, you can imagine, Daniel was eager to get into the king's presence. And let's pick it up at verse 28. And he stands before the king and says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And God has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Say latter days. Other translation says, God has shown the king what will take place in the last days. So basically, the context of this dream, the fulfillment of this dream, is to do with a particular era of time, which the Bible describes as the last days. Say last days. Anyone know when the last days are? Well, it's now. That's what the Bible says. In fact, in, in Day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, that was the beginning of the latter days, the beginning of the last days. So in other words, this dream refers to what God's going to do in our era. That's the point. The last days end when Jesus returns. Between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus is this period called the last days. This dream is about the period that we are living in now. God has shown the king what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions that were on your mind while you were on your bed. Verse 31. You, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. And that statue was large and of extraordinary splendor. And it was standing in front of you and its appearance was awesome. Apparently it was from the 90s. The head of the statue was made of gold and its breast and arms of silver and its belly and thighs of bronze and its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you continued looking until the stone was cut out without hands. Say without hands. 
and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed. All at the same time, it came like chaff on the summer's threshing floor and the winds just carried them away and not a trace of them was to be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Say that last bit with me. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Say it again. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. When will that happen? In the last days. The stone that struck the statue will become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. So Daniel describes to the king the dream. Now you can imagine exactly how the king is feeling. This king, who was one of the most intimidating men in the ancient world, this dominating world empire leading king, all of a sudden was intimidated. He was on his throne. He was gripping the handles of his throne. A man has just described to him exactly what he saw in his head. He's blown away. He's freaked out. This is the real deal. A Jewish exile has just described to him his dreams. And he's got his attention. And then he goes on, and I'm, going to, I'm just going to summarize what the next few verses say. You can read it in your own time. He says, King, the statue you saw represents four empires that are going to be on planet Earth. And this is the amazing thing about the book of Daniel. You can take the Bible and take your history book, and the correlation is incredible. And what you see is there were four world empires. And, and here's a picture of, of, of the statues to help illustrate it. And the statue in the, in the first of the world empires, he said, you, O king, are the head of gold. It's the, Roman, sorry, it's, the, it's the Babylonian empire, which reigned from 625 to 539 BC, the head of gold. And then following that, historically, there was the next empire, it's the Medes and the Persians, which reigned from 539 to 331 BC. And then there was the next empire, the Greek empire, which represented the, set, the, 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 the bronze in the statue, which lasted from 331 to 63 BC. And then finally came the Roman Empire, which lasted from 63 BC to the fall of Rome in 700, sorry, 476 AD. So we see these four world empires. And he said, King, the, the statue represents four world empires. Each part of the statue represents one of the world empires. Each metal, the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron, represent four world empires. And, you know, on so many levels, this is an incredible prophecy. Because if you think about those materials, so let me just take you, just show you the, the amazingness of God's prophetic scriptures. So first of all, gold, silver, bronze, iron. You notice each one of these metals become less and less in value. Gold is very expensive. Silver is a bit less expensive. Bronze is a bit less expensive. And iron is a bit more common. And so too it was the case that just as they're de decreasing in value, so also the moral fabric and moral values of those uh, kingdoms became gradually more and more eroded. As, and so the, the Babylonian Empire, they weren't perfect, but their moral standards were higher than the, than the Medes and the Persians, which were higher than the Greek Empire, which were higher than eventually the Roman Empire in its corruptness. Also notice about these metals that as you go down from gold, silver, bronze, and iron, they become harder in metals. Gold is a soft metal, and it gets progressively harder until iron, which is just like iron, solid. And so also, the durability of each of these kingdoms increased. Notice the length of time each kingdom lasted. The Babylonian Empire lasted 86 years, whereas the Medes and Persians lasted 
208 years. The Greek Empire with Alexander the Great and his, and his, his generals lasted 268 years and the Roman Empire lasted 539 years. Each one lasted progressively longer. Isn't that incredible? Just on a couple of levels, this, this prophecy is incredibly, incredibly accurate and perceptive. But that's not the bit I want to get excited about and that's not the bit that envisioned me. The bit that got me and the bit that should get you is verse 35 where it says, the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Apparently, these world empires, I mean, where is the Greek Empire today? Where is the Roman Empire today? Where is the Medes and the Persians and where are the Babylonians? Those empires which seemed in their time so immovable, so unshakable, so permanent are no longer anywhere. They've become like chaff on the summer threshing floor and the, and the wind has just blown them away. But there is something, however, that has lasted these two millennia. There is something that happened in the times of the Roman Empire. At that time, it says a stone was cut out of the mountain without human hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron, i.e. at the time of the Roman Empire. Something happened at the time of the Roman Empire which started small like a little stone which is destined to become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. When? In the last days. So what was that? Well, I propose to you that stone that struck the statue and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth was a man and a movement. It's a man. He's called Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away, a child was born to a virgin. The virgin's name was Mary. She was a teenage girl between 13 and 17 years old. Husband was Joseph, working class guy, call him Joe, worked as a carpenter. Jesus never had any formal education. And Jesus was born miraculously to a virgin. Remember the verse says, a stone was cut out of the mountain without human hands. The virgin birth. It was God intervening in human history. This was not man's doing. Jesus was not the product of man. Jesus was God's intervention on earth without human hands. His credentials are very simple at first glance. He never traveled more than 200 miles away from home. He never went to college. He never received a formal education. He never wrote any books or any articles. And yet in spite of this, more songs have been sung about him, more books written about him, and more paintings painted of him than any other person who's ever lived. His life on earth lasted a brief 33 years. And actually his ministry only was three years. And yet in three years of ministry, his life in three years has impacted this planet more than anyone has, even given their entire lifespan. Everyone else pales into insignificance compared to the weightiness of the teaching and the inspiration of this man, Jesus Christ. His words are held in high regard today. And his biography, the Bible, is the world's all-time bestseller. His teaching has inspired the birthing of aid organizations, healthcare systems, educational systems, orphanages, missionaries. Civilization is based on Jesus Christ's teachings. No other teaching has brought fruit like that on this earth, has brought blessing and has brought life and has brought health and strength to humanity like the teaching of Jesus Christ. Every other regime based on other teachings has brought disastrous results on human life, whereas the influence of Jesus Christ on any given culture brings life, blessing, and strength. Just read your history books. This Jesus has transformed the world. In his first coming alone, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies predicting his first coming. All of history dates to his birthday, AD and BC. 
And one third of our world's population would claim to be Christian followers of Jesus. His death was no accident. When he died on that cross, it was the very design of God to save humanity. Jesus came into this world. You see, we're born and we will die, but Jesus was born to die. Jesus came for the purpose of dying. That's why his name is Jesus, which is translated God our Savior. His agenda from the word go was to save you. And he did it in the most radical way. He did what no one else has done for you because no one else loved you like he does. He laid his life down for you. A sacrifice is what saves you. He shed his blood so your sins could be forgiven. He died death. He, 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 he died a death on the cross so that you could live forevermore. He rose again from the dead and he's alive today. And the Bible promises if you will trust him to be your savior, you'll be saved. You'll be resurrected on the inside. It's called being born again. You will have eternal life. Your sins will be dealt with. You'll be declared righteous by God. This is the greatest news ever. And Jesus did this for you. His, his birth was without human hands, virgin birth. And his resurrection was without human hands. I love what Peter Larson says. The life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, the virgin's womb and the empty tomb. Jesus entered through a world our world through a door marked no entrance and he exited our world through a door marked no exit two impossibilities bracket the life of Jesus do you know this man do you know Jesus I don't know I'm not saying do you know about him I'm saying do you know him has he become your savior if he hasn't become your savior I've got great news for you he's here just now he's here in his risen power, Jesus is here. He's alive. His spirit is here. And he is so longing to save you. God wants to be in your life, very close up and personal. Not a distant thought, but a real reality in your everyday life. Why would you want to live another day on planet Earth without having Jesus in your life? Tonight, before you go, I will give you an opportunity to accept Jesus as your savior. I believe the stone represents a man. But I also believe... The stone that struck the statue and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth represents the movement that Jesus began. It's the man and it's his movement. The stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. What's it talking about? Well, Daniel, if you read the chapter, he tells us it's talking about God's kingdom that he set up through Jesus Christ. It talks about the church and the kingdom and the movement that Jesus began. When will it happen? When will the movement of Jesus, this thing called the local church, this thing called the kingdom of God, when will this movement become a great mountain and fill the whole earth? Answer, you read it with me. When? What's the era in which it will happen? It's called the last days. It will happen in our era. And I'd never seen that before. I thought, I grew up in a church environment where churches were declining and churches were meant to be small and uninfluential and there was no hope of really impacting the world. And yet God's word says, and God never fails, and God never lies. God's word declares that what Jesus began is going to become like a great mountain and fill the entire planet before he returns. Nothing less. I, I don't believe everyone will be in the church. I don't believe everyone will be in the church. But I do believe everyone will know about it. In every culture, in every society, in every city, town, and village, you will not be able to miss the local church. Like a mountain on the horizon of everyone's lives. You, you might love it. You might hate it. But you're not going to be able to miss it. 
Its influence will touch every aspect of society. Just like salt brings life and healing, just like light shines in the darkness, Jesus Christ's church is designed to fill this entire planet. It says in Ephesians, it's the fullness of him, uh, the church, his body, the fullness of him that fills everything in every way. God's intention is to fill the youth sphere through the local church. How's, how, how, how's the youth culture going to change in the city? Through the local church. Not just our local church, but the local church. How are we going to see politics change? Through the local church's influence, standing for truth, even when others don't. I don't suggest we become political, but I do suggest we have a voice. How is the business world going to change? As believers walk with integrity in the business world, think big, operate in God's principles. That's how transformation will come. How will we see people elevated out of poverty as the local church is just being the local church? Read the book of Acts. They brought transformation in entire cities and people were elevated out of poverty. Orphans were cared for, widows were cared for, lives were transformed, slaves were set free. That's the local church and that's who we are. We're the bride of Christ. We're just the very thing that God is going to use to bring transformation in society. So that's why I'm kind of excited about it. And that's why I just decided, well, I'm just going to give the rest of my life to that thing then because that sounds like that's what God's in. So I'm going to be involved in that, the local church. When I saw that as a teenager, it changed my mindset completely. I started seeing other verses in the Bible that said exactly the same thing. I mean, it says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, it will come about in the last days. Oh, there's that phrase again. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord's will be established as chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the nations will stream to it. God's saying exactly the same thing. You have to understand that there is nothing else that will bring transformation on planet earth more than alive, God-glorifying, spirit-filled, Bible-based, people-loving, poor, helping, gospel-preaching, disciple-making local churches. Nothing else will bring transformation more than that. Anyone agree? So how's it been going? Well, it's been going very well. Thanks for asking. Way back in the day of Pentecost, after Jesus had risen from the dead and commissioned his disciples, there was 120 people waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. People were filled with the Holy Spirit, started speaking in tongues. And tonight, some of you are going to have that experience. We're going to pray for people tonight to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you'll be speaking in tongues and experiencing the gifts of the Spirit in your life. On the day of Pentecost, people had this experience. And the Bible says that that day, thousands of people were in Jerusalem and 3,000 people decided to follow Jesus on the day of Pentecost. Day one of the church. Went from 120 to 3,120 in a day. And as you go through the book of Acts, through the 30-year span of the book of Acts, those 28 chapters in Acts spans 30 years. And in that 30-year span, the 120 people, it's estimated, became 100,000 people in the Jewish community alone. And there was multiple times that in the Gentile community. Hundreds of thousands of people in a 30-year span. Over the following four centuries, it grew to the point where 50% of the Roman Empire would claim to be followers of Jesus. In the 5th century, Patrick heads to Ireland. You've got to read about Patrick. By the way, incredible. Patrick was taken as a slave. He, he, he grew up in England. A, a, a band of bandits came from Ireland and kidnapped him and took him to Ireland. There he lived as a slave to a pagan pig farmer. And during that time, age 16, in his teenage years, during that time, he came to have faith in Jesus. And God gave Patrick a vision of how to escape from slavery. And as a 22-year-old, by a miracle, he managed to escape and return to England at age 22. That was when God called him back to Ireland. God spoke to him about 
going back to Ireland and evangelizing. So he got some training and then he returns. And Patrick, in a very short space of time, in 30 years, established 700 churches in Ireland, baptized tens of thousands of people, trained 3,000 church leaders, legally abolished slavery in Ireland. There is records of 39 people he saw raised from the dead. God used Patrick in Ireland in the, fourth, in, in the fifth century. In the sixth century, Gregory the Great sends Augustine and a team of missionaries to England and from Canterbury they evangelized and in one year they'd baptized 10,000 people. In the seventh century, Christian missionaries first went to China. In the 13th century, the Bible is now available in 2,200 languages. In the 16th century, Martin Luther pinned his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door and the Reformation fires ignited in Europe. And all across Europe, people came alive to the great truth that you are saved by faith in the gospel. And all around the world, people came alive in faith. In the 18th century, the Moravians started the first large-scale missionary movement. You've heard me this morning talking about these guys. Um, Zinzerndorf and the Moravians, incredible people. He's a guy who he just opened his his property for some refugees to come and live in his land. And there were 300 of them, the Moravians. They were originally from the Czech Republic. They were on the run for their lives. Many of them had been persecuted. And they came and lived in Zinzendorf's land. And they, together, the Holy Spirit fell in that group of people. And in 150 years, that grouping sent out over 2,000 missionaries around the world. And there's the amazing story. I shared it this morning of two of them in their desire to reach slaves in the Caribbean they sold themselves to be slaves in order to reach slaves. Incredible. Incredible. Courageous people. In the, we saw John and Charles Wesley in the 18th century going out and sharing the gospel. Uh, John and Charles Wesley, John, John Wesley traveled quarter of a million miles on a horse. Man, I, I've never even done one mile on a horse. Imagine that's awkward and painful and not comfortable and not nice in the slightest. But John Wesley traveled quarter of a million miles on a horse or several horses. I don't know how long horses last, but I'm guessing on a few horses, right? Uh, but he did that and he preached 46,000 sermons up and down the length and breadth of Britain. George Whitfield also, he preached to huge crowds of people in the open air without any PA system, but he would speak to sometimes up to 10,000 people in the open air with no PA system, and multitudes of people came to faith. Saw revival spark in Rutherglen and Cambus Lang and Colsyth, some of these areas. Saw great moves of God all around the nation. Thousands came to faith in the UK in the 18th century through the Wesleys and the Whitfields and, and, their, and their contemporaries. In fact, secular historians will tell you if it wasn't for those reformers, Britain was heading for what happened in France, the French Revolution. We were, we were anticipated to see the same revolution take place in Britain, but it was because of the influence of the reformers, the gospel that they preached, that Britain was steered away from that disastrous situation. Isn't that incredible? Men and women of God serving God, making a difference. William Carey went to India, founded the Baptist Missionary Society, planted churches, translated the Bible into six languages, established 100 schools for all different castes. He established the first college in Asia and he stopped the horrendous practice of widow burning. In the 20th century, we've seen some of the greatest moves of God in the 20th century than any generation has ever seen. The 20th century started with the Welsh Revival in 1904 
where in a two-year period, 100,000 people in Wales came to faith. In 1906, the, the Azuzu Street in Los Angeles revival broke out in a tiny little building, a little wooden timber-clad building where a man called William Seymour, a one-eyed black guy uh, with, with slave parents, started a revival at a time when racism was rife and he was a black leader and he had under his commands white people. It was this amazing merger of races and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that resulted in what we call Pentecostal and charismatic churches. Today, did you know on planet Earth today, there are six to 700 million Pentecostal charismatic believers. That, folks, is about one in 12 people on planet Earth are part of a Pentecostal charismatic church. That's amazing. That one in three believers are Pentecostal charismatic believers. It is incredible. And that only took place just over 100 years ago. God is moving. In the last century, we see some of the great movements of God through great evangelists like Billy Graham and Reinhard Bonnke and others who between them have seen millions of people coming to faith. We saw the first church reach one million in membership in Seoul, Korea with David Jonggi Cho. Uh, The Uido Full Gospel Church became one million people, just under one million people. Since then, we've seen several churches in Nigeria cross the one million with the large redeemed church in Lagos with a one million attendance and one, one million membership. God is breaking out in power. In Korea, in 100 years, it went from 0% Christian to 40 to 50% Christian in a 100 year period. Nigeria saw this, this rapid growth of churches there, but all across Africa, Africa went from 9% Christian to over 50% Christian in a 100 year period. Wow. The Chinese underground church is growing rapidly. <clears throat> they're seeing a similar expansion in a 100-year period. And they see every day on planet Earth, they see 25,000 decisions for Jesus in China, in the underground church. 25,000. Today, we have 25,000 new brothers and sisters in China. Let's hear it for God. That's amazing. <clears throat> As we approach the turn of the millennia, this is the situation in the world. In 1974 half the world's population was beyond the reach of the local church. By the year 2000, it shifted to only being one-third of the world's population beyond the reach of the local church. So today, the world is divided in thirds. It is one-third of the world's population would claim to be Christian. One-third of the world's population is beyond the reach of the church. And one-third of the world's population is not Christian in areas where the church is active. The world has changed. In the 21st century, we've seen an incredible move of God among the Muslims' people. If you want to read a great book, it's called A Wind in the House of Islam, where it describes the rapid acceleration of God seeing souls of Muslim, precious Muslim people coming to faith in Jesus. And it's happening largely by them having visions and dreams, seeing Jesus in a dream and knowing that he's the one they need to follow. Large scale, this is not small scale, it's large scale. Uh, One of the first Muslim converts we saw in our church in Nigeria came because for six nights in a row he had a dream, seeing Jesus in the dream, and he knew he needed to give his life to Jesus. He gave his life to Jesus in our church, and we had to relocate him from the town he was living in to another town because it was no longer safe for him to be there because he'd converted from Islam. That's what's happening, folks, and it's on a large scale. Jesus Christ, the stone that struck the statue is becoming a great mountain, and it's filling the whole earth. 
Every day, according to Barrett and Johnson from Gordon Cromwell University, they record that every day on planet Earth there are 100,000 people decide to follow Jesus today. That's pretty good church growth today, isn't it? Every day, 100,000 new converts every day. Every week on planet Earth, there are 4,500 new churches established. It's been a good week. It's been a good week. You know, if you were a gambler 2,000 years ago, if you had to place your bets, okay, what's going to last the next two millennia? The Roman Empire with its Caesars, its architecture, its legions, its money, its resources, or a kind of dubious character with flip-flops and some quirky followers. Which one will last the next two millennia? I know where you'd have placed your bets. And yet here we are 2,000 years later and we're calling our kids Peter and Mary and Paul and we're calling our dogs Nero and Caesar. (laughs) So what are the implications for your life here? So I, I don't know if you see it, but I see it. I see that the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That what God started 2,000 years ago is becoming the greatest movement on earth. And it's only destined to get better. So I have optimism. I don't care if the stats are doing this in Scotland. I don't care. Because I have a book that tells me differently. So yeah, this is happening. I'm telling you, this is also happening. And yes, maybe nominal attendance is dropping. But the real deal is happening. People are getting born again. The best days are ahead for the local church. I believe, by God's grace, we're going to be, we're going to be a local church of thousands of people. We're going to be several percentages of our city's population in one congregation. I believe it. I really believe it. I believe each of our new locations can become multiple times as big as the whole church currently is. I believe in each location we can see hundreds and hundreds of people as well as starting dozens of locations around our city. And I pray that for us, but I also pray it for other churches in our city. God wants to see other churches ignite in faith and growth. Percentages of the city's population in lots of churches. And we're, we're, we're re-Christianizing our city. I believe, I, why wouldn't I believe that? Because the Bible says the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So do not expect anything. Like, call me a fool if you want, but I'm going to give it everything. I'm going to believe God to do that in my generation. I've only got one life. I'm desperately aching in my heart for the population who have turned away from God. God wants to win them back. The gospel is great. God's on the move. His Holy Spirit's with us. And God wants to do it in our generation. Give me an amen if you agree. So three implications in closing. Three implications. First of all, number one, change your view of church. Change your view of church. If you've been thinking small about church, change your view of church. Think big. Have a big vision of God and have a big vision of church and a big vision of kingdom advance. And when I say change your view of church, I also also would encourage you, don't be immature when it comes to your view of church. Many Christians are immature when it comes to church. They treat churches like restaurants or shops. They kind of, you know, if you go to a restaurant and you don't get good service, well, I'll just go to a different restaurant. And Christians treat churches this way. They kind of jump around churches, never really settling. You know, stop dating churches, commit to one. Boom, I said it, okay? You, you've heard it now. Stop dating churches, commit to one. The, no, no one's perfect. Yeah, there's flaws here, there's flaws there. Sure, no, no perfect church. In fact, if you haven't been offended at destiny, it's just simply because you haven't not been around long enough. It will happen. You will get offended at our church just like you'll get offended at any other church. Why? Because it's full of human beings like you and like me. Just commit to one. There's no perfect church, but there's a right church for you. So find that right church. If it's here, welcome. Put your roots down and grow. And God wants to use you in this church. You know, don't, 
bitch about churches, have a great attitude about churches. You might disagree with another church and say, but don't go telling people about it. Pray for them. Stop criticizing leaders. If you've been hurt in previous church, don't go telling anyone about it. Either go and talk to them about it or just talk to God about it. But don't go around being a gossip. Don't be divisive. Don't bitch. Just have a great attitude. Love the local church. God calls the local church his bride. I would hate anyone bitching about my bride. Don't bitch about God's bride. Love God's bride. Celebrate God's bride. It's an imperfect bride, but apparently God can see past that. Apparently in his redemptive power, he declares us righteous and he loves us. So don't condemn what Jesus died to justify. Don't put down what Jesus said, I will build up. Love what God loves. He calls the local church his bride. I know it's quite common these days for people to say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I just don't go to church. Well, to be honest, technically, technically you can be a Christian without going to church. But here's the problem. You cannot live the Christian life without the local church. There's something about this environment that changes you. There's something about what God wants to do in sanctifying work in your life that cannot happen apart from the local church. Sitting at home watching God TV and eating potato chips will not be enough for you to be church. You need interactions with real people and sometimes those real people will wind you up but sometimes that's maybe what God designs to help you become more like Jesus. Say praise the Lord. Okay, praise the Lord. So just love your local church. Second implication. Think big and act small. You know, God thinks big but act small. God thinking big caused a little stone to come into this world that devastated the world empires. And yet it's become the great mountain that's filling the whole earth. God thinks big and acts small. God thinking salvation to the world was born as a tiny child to a virgin called Mary in a little village called Bethlehem. God thinks big, but acts small. So you've got to think big and act small. You know, when we started the church here, <clears throat> we were just chatting about this a moment ago at the start. You know, it started in my living room. And uh, you know, the first guy who came along called Bill, he had long hair and a beard. He looked just like Jesus. And we figured if you're going to start a church, if you can get a guy who looks just like Jesus, that's got to that's be a good start, right? And then and it was in the early days, it was, it was the Pete and Angie show. So we would turn up at church and we, would, we, we hired a little primary school and Angie would be at the door welcoming people. And then people would come in and I'd be there serving them tea. So Angie was the visitors team and the welcome team. And I was the catering team. So I served people teas and coffees. And then time came down for worship. Well, that was me. So I, I led the worship. It was really good. <laughs> and then after the worship, it was time for the speaker. So now we're going to hand on to today's speaker who, well, that's me. So then I, then I would preach. And then after that, well, the ministry team will now pray for you. And that was me and Angie. And we'd pray for you. And if you needed follow-up, it was me and Angie. And if you needed evangelizing, it was me and Angie. And basically, it was the Pete and Angie show. And you know, do you know what? We were thinking big, but we were acting small. It wasn't impressive. It was very small but we had to do something. You can't, I mean, you can't have a vision like this. I saw this when I was 19, folks. These verses I'm sharing with you. I'd seen it. I couldn't do nothing about that. And God just told me, come to Edinburgh and start a church. So I just did. Think big and act small. Think big and act small. Think global, act local. Everyone's got called to do one thing. You know that? And you know what we're all collectively called to do? If you're a follower of Jesus, God calls you to go make disciples think big but act small just one life at a time tell someone about Jesus this week 
I told two people this afternoon about Jesus. Both of them didn't want anything to do with him. My heart breaks. But I'm not going to do nothing. Because I do believe that the destiny that God's got for them is salvation. Think big and act small. Go make disciples. Tell someone about Jesus. And when you see people coming to faith, help them in that journey. Think big, act small. Start a small group. Let's start somewhere. Go to a small group. And then start a small group. Think big, act small. Start a church. God will call some of you to start a church, just like he called me to start a church. I'll help you. I'll coach you. I'll be your friend in the journey. Our vision is to start new locations all over the city. We want to see two more started between now and 2020. We want to see one in the city center and see one in West Lothian. Some of you will be part of that. But also we want to plant churches by God's grace around various parts of the world. God will call some of you to plant churches. Think big, act small. God thinking big acted small. Jesus came into the world. He gathered 12 people. And with those 12 people, he changed the world. Just go make disciples. Third implication is this. Be wholly dependent on God's spirit. In the vision, the statue represents man's empires, man-made power. But it was all temporary, even though it looked impressive. But in the vision, you saw a little stone that was cut out of the mountain without human hands. And that represented what God was doing. And it was permanent. And it was destined to grow and succeed. And so I want to encourage you, be wholly God-dependent. You know, you can't change a life. You can't heal a sick body. You can't raise anyone from the dead. And you can't change this city. But God can. And God wants to do it through you. God wants to change people's lives through us. Do you believe that? I really believe that. I really believe that. And you might be so aware of your frailties and your weaknesses. Me too. But I am not aware of God's frailty and weakness. God is great. And God is able to do incredible things through flawed and ordinary people like us. I have that conviction and I believe that with all my heart. When I was 15 years old, having gone to a very traditional church that didn't speak much about the Holy Spirit or about miracles or about power, I started reading the Bible. It's a great great idea to read your Bible. And in the Bible, I discovered that God filled people with the Holy Spirit. And one night at my friend's house, my friend laid hands on me and prayed for me. We didn't know what we were doing. We came with childlike, simple faith. And I asked that God would fill me with the Holy Spirit, just like he filled people with the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And that evening, as hands were laid on me, I experienced this filling of the Holy Spirit and I started speaking with tongues. And all I know is this. Things changed. I started seeing people miraculously healed. That's me as an individual. I want you all to have these experiences. And tonight, again, we will pray for anyone who wants to be prayed for for these things. But collectively as a church, I do not assume we can do anything without God. That's why we've taken this last week to pray and fast. That's a huge, it's us saying collectively, God, we can, but you can. I believe God wants to do great things. I believe God heard our prayers last week. I believe great days are ahead for us as a church. And I want to encourage you to believe God. Do not be self-confident, be God-confident. Do not be someone who's a self-made man, be a God-made man and woman. 
and believe that God can do great things through you. Every step we've taken as a church, every location we've planted, we didn't think about it ourselves. God inspired us. Prophecies came confirming where we should start. God led us to the right people to lead each of these works. God has done all this. What, one church, four locations. Thank you, God. It was his work, not ours. And what will come in the future will be his work, not ours. So be totally dependent on God's spirit. Let's go back to the verses in closing. It says in verses 46 to 47, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. I mean, wouldn't you? You just had a real experience with God. The God you didn't even know. He gave you a dream. Showed you what was going to take place in history. Told you about a great thing God was going to do in the world. Even though it was centuries ahead, God had revealed something. And Nebuchadnezzar had, was impacted. He fell on his face. This king never bowed before anyone, let alone a Jewish exile. And Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face because of the presence of God. And the king answered Daniel and he said, listen to what he says. Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. There's a little backstory which is beautiful. You know when God revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar, he revealed himself as the God who would start something on planet earth as a little small stone that became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Do you know what the name of Nebuchadnezzar's God was? His pagan God. Do you know what the name of his God was? The great mountain. Isn't that interesting? So God was deliberately messing with his head. (laughs) Messing with your head, Nebuchadnezzar. He suddenly realized, your God is the God of gods. Listen to his declaration. He's the God of gods. In other words, my God is down here. Yours is the true God. Isn't that an amazing declaration? And notice what he also says. He's the Lord of kings. Do you see that? Nebuchadnezzar, there was no one higher than Nebuchadnezzar. He was the ancient monarch. He was the man who ruled not just a nation, but nations. Everyone held him in great respect. He was feared by the world's population, by the entire known world, feared Nebuchadnezzar. And yet Nebuchadnezzar says he is the Lord of kings. He was acknowledging there is one higher than me. And I want to say to you, there is one higher than you. You may be the monarch in your own life. You may have felt, I'm the boss, I'm in control, I'm the one on the throne. But the truth is, you're not. There is one higher than you and your life will go so well by you falling in your face and letting God be your God and letting Lord be your Lord. Let him be the Lord over your life. Let him be the God over every other God you have worshipped. Let him be the true worship of your heart. Let him be the greatest desire and the greatest passion of your life and let him have your everything. You only live once. Why would you want to live a secular life? Why not live a life that's God-filled and God-centered and God-honoring and God-empowered and full of God's vision? It's not necessarily the easy life. In fact, sometimes following God's the toughest choice you could ever make. Sometimes it makes life harder, but it's the best. Let Jesus be Lord of your life tonight. Let's pray. God, thank you you're among us and thank you that you're the God who speaks. You're the God who moves in power. You're the God who saves kings. You're the God who's interested in people who are not interested in you. You're the God who intervenes in world history. You're the God who 
Nothing takes you by surprise. You're the God who is in control of world events. You're the God who is seeing to it that your kingdom prevails and your church is established. Thank you, there is no God like you. You are the only true God, the true God, the creator of all things, the Almighty. And so God, thank you, Father God, thank you for your incredible love. And Jesus, thank you for coming into this world for the purpose of saving us. And Jesus, thank you that you were the man who others disregarded and yet you are the greatest. They crucified you and yet your crucifixion was your plan to save us. You resurrected on the third day and today you're alive. You're the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. You're the name above every other name. At your name every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no one like you, God. No one can compare to you. You are the Almighty. Glory to your name. Take a moment to pray to God. Just talk to him just now. We've looked at the Bible. We've looked at some things in a moment. We're going to spend some time worshipping. But I just want you to have a moment with God just now. Just talk to him about what you've heard tonight. If you felt challenged, then talk to God about that. If you feel you need to change in an area, then talk to God about that just now. while people are praying I want to give you an opportunity tonight if tonight you realise that you don't yet know God you've never really put your faith in Jesus to be your saviour then tonight I'd love the privilege of helping you make that choice just now and it's a big choice but it's the greatest choice if tonight you're here and you're saying Peter tonight I believe that Jesus did die on the cross for me and rise again. And tonight, I want to make him Lord of my life. Then if that's you, just pray this prayer with me just now. Let this be your response to him. Pray it with me. One line at a time. Repeat after me under your breath. Pray. Dear Lord God, thank you so much for your love for me. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me to save me. Thank you that when you shed your blood, it means that I can be forgiven and saved. I believe in the third day you rose again. I believe tonight that you are alive, that you are Lord, that you are the King of the universe. And tonight I place my faith in you. Be my Savior, I pray. Forgive me for all my sins. I give my life over to you. Jesus, take first place in my heart. Be Lord 
of my life. Thank you for hearing my prayer. your eyes closed if tonight you prayed that prayer and tonight that was your decision and you prayed that with me and that was your heart's cry to God I have good news for you God has heard your prayer and he saves you I'd like to pray for you if that's you tonight and you prayed that prayer just while everyone else's eyes are closed could you indicate to me you prayed that prayer just by raising your hand and saying, that's me, and then I want to pray for you. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Is there anyone else? Anyone else before I pray? Let me pray for my two friends here. Lord, thank you for these two precious people. Thank you, God, tonight you've heard their prayer. Thank you, God, for loving them and bringing them to you tonight. And I pray right now they would know your acceptance and love and forgiveness. I pray this would be the beginning of a whole new journey with God. In Jesus' name, amen.